0: From India's largest newsroom, I'm Arun George, and this is the Times of India podcast. The world sat up and took notice when protests broke out in China against its zero COVID policy. But just as quickly as the widespread protests erupted, they also seemed to end. William Hurst, is the Chonghua Professor of Chinese Development in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge. He explains why the protests seem to die down so quickly.
1: Well, I think that they're notable in that seldom have we seen one umbrella frame or or master narrative linked together what are usually quite distinct or even disconnected strands or repertoires of contention in Chinese society. So we see every day in China, there are scores of protests, even hundreds of protests around different issues. But these tend to be confined to specific places or specific uh, contexts. Uh, So we see all, all the time workers' protests around labor issues in factories. We see student protests on campuses we can see farmers protesting in, in villages. Uh, we see people upset about urban governance and deli- delivery of social services and public goods. Uh, and we see occasionally uh, people engaging in protests uh, out of sort of more systemic critiques of the regime. Uh, now, what this has done is it's brought together four of those five strands. Um, not so much farmers, from what I can tell. Uh, At least I haven't seen any reports about farmers' protests linked specifically to what happened here. But there was a fire on the 24th of November uh, in Urumqi, in northwestern China's uh, Xinjiang region. And at least 10 people died in the fire. And there were some videos of the response to the fire, the firefighters' response, that are very hard to watch. Those those videos spread very widely on social media immediately after the fire. uh, And it looks in the videos and has been claimed by some of the people uh, who sent them around as though COVID-related restrictions and lockdowns prevented the firefighters from reaching the building, and even worse, maybe prevented some of the residents from leaving their apartments or leaving the building, uh, and then they died there. And so this sparked immediately a, a sort of sense of outrage among many people and motivated all of these different diverse groups uh, kind of to come together around protests against the ongoing lockdowns in China, those protests lasted for several days, and then they seem to have at least for now dissipated in part, I think because the state turned up the dial a little bit towards repression, uh, making it clear that the, that there would at some point be a cost to continuing to protest and engaging in some very targeted repressive measures like arresting a few people. Um, but the other thing is that it's just very difficult to hold together a kind of umbrella framing like that for very long. And I think what we're seeing here is just the failure of that to continue to bring together these otherwise disconnected groups.
0: In today's episode, Professor Hurst is in conversation with my colleague Pinaki Chakraborty about the impact of the protests against the zero-COVID policies in China. He explains how China could ease its zero-COVID rules and the action protesters could have faced. He also explains why the vaccination campaign has been so slow in China and the big worries for the nation as it opens up.
2: Has the government eased the norms and does that also show that the government is willing to give a little...
1: I think very slightly, yes, there, there are some small moves, although not insignificant ones towards opening. But at the same time, and we have to remember that the Chinese government always likes to remind us this, this isn't just one policy. They call it dynamic zero COVID as a strategy rather than a singular policy that can be just switched on and off. So there's actually a tremendous suite of regulations and measures that are enforce all the time in different places in different ways from city to city neighborhood to neighborhood even building to building so your building may be completely locked down my building next door is not and i can come and go and go to work and do, do normal things this is what the situation has been like in china for a very long time and it still is like that even with some of the the restrictions being eased a little bit in the last few days talking to people on the ground, it's quite clear that not every place has eased the restrictions equally. If we take, for example, just one city that says, all right, we no longer need to have negative test results to go inside offices or shops or uh, other public spaces, they may say that, but then individual offices, shops, or public spaces may decide that they still will require a negative test result uh, to enter because they're not comfortable rolling back that restriction.
2: When you say that individual companies will decide, it indirectly means the government
1: decides, right? What the government is doing is they're setting a kind of baseline. In practice, um, the re- the restrictions that the government puts in place are a kind of floor rather than a ceiling. So again, we saw this kind of in many countries on some level where the government would say, you no longer have to wear a mask uh, to go into indoor spaces, but some... Businesses or offices or government offices even sometimes would say, if you come into our place, you still have to wear a mask. Um, And they continue to do that for some time. And that's essentially what's happening in China now is that the government is saying we don't need to require this anymore. But there's very little consequence for someone to require more than what the government mandates. And so I think for actually quite a long time, I've thought that it's very likely that we would see some easing of restrictions in March of 2023, because that's when we have the meetings of uh, the National People's Congress and the Chinese People's Political Consultative Congress. And I think that the political sensitivity around those events, the Party Congress that just happened a month and a half ago, um, and then the Olympics and other things before that, meant that it was very difficult for them to dial back the restrictions before March. So I thought after March, they would try very hard uh, to... Return to something as close to normal as possible for economic and social reasons, right? because the harm being done to society and the economy is really severe uh, by the three years almost of ongoing degrees of lockdown across most of China. So that's not going to be easy, even when they do that, and there'll have to be a long period of back and forth and kind of easing and tightening and you know moving back as, as again almost every country experienced. In the UK, it took us almost a year uh, to get out of lockdown. To complete return to, to normality. Uh, and I would expect in China it will also take a long time. But um, now it looks like if things have changed, it may be that they're trying to accelerate that a bit. I'm, I have no evidence for this except my speculation that if they're starting now to try to make sure all old people are vaccinated. Um, starting from this week. Um, And if they're trying to move faster with rolling back restrictions, the target date, I would guess, is the Chinese New Year on the 22nd of January. So they may accelerate this timeline by a couple of months. Whether or not that's in direct response to the protests, I don't know. Um, It's possible that that's a factor, certainly. But I think the decision has to have been... A little while in the making. You can't roll out a national vaccine campaign on every street corner in 24 hours. Even even the Chinese government can't do that, right? So they they'd have to have had this in the works for quite a while, um, and maybe they moved it up by a week or or, or something. But they didn't just decide this immediately and, and put it into place.
2: The protests that have happened. How are these protests very different from uh, the ones that have taken place earlier?
1: well i think they're different precisely because of that master frame or or general narrative against the lockdowns that really crystallized for many people their uh, sense that they that it was worth it uh, to go out into the street and to articulate claims and engage in contention uh, so in A lot of the literature about social movements or contentious politics, there's an assumption that there's an organization or a leader of a movement who can craft a frame or a narrative and deploy that uh, strategically to motivate people to protest. In China, you really can't do that. Um, There aren't a lot of organizations that that can pull together a social movement. Um, Most that would potentially form or are going to be repressed fairly quickly. There aren't usually leaders who step to the fore and try to articulate a frame. And that what we saw here is really an example of what I would call a kind of structural framing. That there's something out there that happens or that that uh, uh, sparks a, a feeling or a sensibility about an issue that resonates very deeply and powerfully across a large number of different segments of society. Um, And that happened to occur with this fire. As far as I can tell, there was no individual or group who said this fire is a tragedy and we need to protest because of it. The problem of course though, is that because there's no one controlling the narrative or organizing the protests, it's very, very hard to sustain. And quickly as the protests continued, the grievances on the claim started to drift away from just being about the fire or the lockdown, to including other things. All of these things that started to happen around censorship and freedom of the press and, and other issues that people had with the government. Now, the problem with that is that there were many people who turned out originally because they were upset about lockdown. They didn't necessarily want to engage in protest against censorship. And so they began to feel uncomfortable being there in the same protest and decide to leave. And so, eventually, you know, the combination of sort of being alienated from this shifting set of grievances and claims, or just growing tired of it and deciding to give up, uh, is probably enough to to get the protests to dissipate of their own accord. In addition to that, then the state gave some small signals or gentle messaging that uh, repression was at least possible, if not likely, should this continue. And I think that's a message which will not be lost on most citizens in China. It will be easy for them to perceive that message, and then a lot of people will become afraid to continue as well.
2: Is there a kind of resentment against the leadership?
1: I think there's always resentment against any leadership in any country, right? There's always people who are angry with any government, and I think China's no different. The difference in China that many people will point to is that the government has been rather adept at pushing that anger down, away from the central government and towards the localities. So if something is wrong, the the tendency of a lot of people protesting about it will be to blame their local authorities or a particular firm or a particular organization rather than to blame the central government. And the central government, of course, prefers that they do that rather than to come and blame the central government. So that is different about these protests as well that they did target in a much more focused way the central government and central leaders and policies than most protests in China that tend to target local measures and local leaders.
2: How should the Chinese leadership look at these protests after Xi Jinping has been given a, uh, you know, a renewed mandate? So are these challenges that he faces or they can be pushed aside easily?
1: Well, I think it was a, a very alarming development for China's leaders uh, to see this happen. I think that they must have been extremely concerned uh, when this broke out. But at the same time, I think that they had a very good sense of how to respond. I think the Chinese government has learned a great deal over the last 30 or 40 years about how to respond to protests effectively in ways that don't risk uh, sort of very costly repression and that also don't necessarily entail bargaining with or giving concessions to protesters. And I think they, they will probably look at this as a great success in managing the protests that way. And then as they also begin to move forward with rolling back some of the restrictions, I think they can point to that Uh, although I don't think they have explicitly, and they probably won't do that explicitly, but they could point to that as a sign of progress in a way that undercuts any claims if somebody wants to protest again. So in other words, if next week someone wants to have another protest against lockdown measures, the government could say, well, why are you protesting now? We've already started rolling back those things. We're already fixing that problem. It's already in progress. Uh, And I think that that probably is a very effective way of dealing with the protests specifically. But the fact that there are a lot of people who are very upset about many issues and feel sort of deep sense of grievance has been present in China for a long time. It's just that those grievances tend to be separated into different streams uh, and very seldom come together. So they're more manageable from the state's perspective.
2: So what normally happens to the protesters now, a lot of them, the videos have been recorded and uh, a lot of them have the Photos taken and, you know, the, all, the Chinese government is basically tracking them. down. So what normally happens to these protesters?
1: Well, this type of protest, as just occurred, um, is not really normal in China. So the response may also be special. But in a, in a situation like this, normally, the government wouldn't have to do anything to the protesters beyond what they've already done because they've stopped protesting, right? If As long as this doesn't recur, there's really no need to do anything. And the more action the government takes, the higher the risks and the costs become for the government. So it's it's easier just to allow this to dissipate of, of its own uh, accord, which is what seems to be happening. Now, there have been these reports about people getting phone calls and receiving, you know, sort of veiled threats from the police or other branches of the government. And that's that's also something that can be done just to remind people that actually their presence at the protest has been noticed and that there could be a cost if they were to do that again or if they were to continue doing that. Um, there's a lot of speculation around how people were tracked. Um, I don't know. I haven't heard anything definitive or or with any real evidence of whether... This was done from videos or from uh, mobile phone tracking. It could have been any of those things or a combination uh, or something much lower tech. Right, There could have been a police officer who observed someone there um, and, and happened to know or took a picture of them and recognized them. Um, so it's probably some combination of those factors in terms of how people were tracked. Um, but I think the state is really just trying to send a message that they know what they did. So I know what you did. And I hope that you don't do it again, sort of messaging, rather than anything more severe at this point. So in
2: terms of the economy and the long lockdown that has taken, I mean, do you think these also play a pivotal role in, you know, a lot of people expressing the anguish?
1: Yes, I think that there are significant economic factors uh, behind these protests and repercussions uh, from lockdowns uh related to the economy. The economic situation in China is very bad and it has been bad for a long time actually. It's been uh not as positive in terms of growth as as many outside China have believed for about the last 10 to 15 years. There's been sort of a declining basis for continuing GDP growth. Um there's a rising tide of youth unemployment and underemployment. There are lots of other economic issues and problems. Uh, there's a huge asset price bubble in real estate that that the government is struggling to figure out how to address. And so as that's all happened, lockdown then added on to that. And the pandemic first and the disruptions and then lockdown on top of that have been really devastating, I think, to the Chinese economy. It's quite difficult to quantify or even to get fully accurate or comprehensive data about it. But Clearly, just day-to-day retail and business activity, service delivery, uh, construction, shipping, supply chain, manufacturing, all of those things have been very significantly impeded uh, and damaged by lockdown. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Chinese government from more than a year ago was almost certainly not thinking that they wanted to prolong lockdown indefinitely just for the sake of prolonging lockdown. It's that the lockdowns have a political utility to keeping sort of cities under social control during a very sensitive time. And then on top of that, if they released the country from these uh, anti-COVID measures, it wasn't clear, and it's still not clear actually, what the consequences of that might be. Could there actually be a huge outbreak of the virus? Could it create a crisis for the health healthcare system? It might. And I think the state was very worried that if it did that at this politically sensitive moment, that could be more risk than it was ready to take on.
2: Why has the vaccination process been so slow?
1: That is a really difficult question, and I don't have a good answer for it. China has been very, very good about developing vaccines very early. Uh, vaccines that are safe and effective from, from all indications. Um, and they were very good about deploying the vaccines fairly early, but they deployed them differently from the way a lot of other countries did. So in, in many countries, including the UK, the vaccines were prioritized first for the most vulnerable groups. And so the strategy was explicitly to use the vaccines to reduce death. And prevent death uh, from the virus as much as possible. And so the first people to get the vaccines were the elderly and those with chronic health issues. Uh, and then it's very slowly worked on. It took more than a year before children were really beginning to be vaccinated properly here. In China, they didn't use that strategy. The, 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 a strategy that was seemed clearest there was that they were using the vaccines to prevent spread of the virus rather than to prevent death from the virus. So they were trying to prioritize the people who would be most likely to spread the virus uh, and give them the vaccine first, because they had very low numbers of cases. There weren't any people dying from COVID when they rolled the vaccines out in China. So they were trying to make sure that an outbreak couldn't occur rather than trying to save people from dying in an ongoing outbreak and because of that the elderly were not at the front of the queue necessarily and so as time went on many of them just decided not to get vaccinated uh, or never bothered to get vaccinated and I I don't understand why people don't want to be vaccinated we see this in in many countries although it's not usually the elderly in other countries who do make that decision but for whatever reason, a certain percentage of people don't don't want to take the vaccine, don't feel comfortable with the vaccine. What I've heard anecdotally from a number of people in China is that a lot of elderly people feel that there is a risk of complications from the vaccine, that it may aggravate conditions like diabetes or high blood pressure. Um, and if they're not likely to get COVID anyway, it's not worth it to take that risk. The fact is that there's a very large number of elderly people in China who have not taken the vaccine up at all. The other issue that China has is they have not been terribly good about getting people boosted with additional doses. They're trying very hard right now, but in many countries, they did a third dose and even a fourth dose of the vaccine. China has only really rolled that up very partially, uh, and they're they're moving faster to try to do it now. And, of course, the other problem in China is that the vaccines that have been used so far are the ones developed in China, which are are safe and appear to be reasonably effective, but they also seem to be less effective than the other types of viral vector or mRNA vaccines that are used in other parts of the world. And at least as far as I know, they've not been updated. So they don't have any kind of bivalent or multivalent vaccines available yet, although they could do that very easily, even with the whole virus vaccine platform that they're using. Uh, At least I think so, I'm not a vaccine scientist, but my sense is that it would be very easy for them to develop an updated vaccine to combat new variants uh, and to deploy that. But as far as I'm aware, they haven't done that yet. The third problem is when they do begin to open, the population will be more vulnerable to higher numbers of cases. And unfortunately, I fear higher numbers of deaths from COVID in part, or in in large part, precisely because of the success of zero COVID for so long, almost no one has had the virus yet. And so in most countries, by the time we began to really open, a very large number of people had already been sick with COVID and recovered. And that gives people some additional immunity, it seems. And so no one has infection-induced immunity in China. And therefore, when you rescind the restrictions and allow the virus to spread, probably a higher number of people will get sick and some may even get severely ill uh, or die, even if they've had the vaccine, than would be the case in another country where the virus had already spread.
2: Where does the Chinese government go from?
1: I think what they're hoping is that we'll return to a kind of uneasy quotidian that was there before the protests and that they'll continue with this So gradual easing of the zero COVID set of restrictions across the country that perhaps at some point, maybe Chinese New Year, maybe after the two meetings in March, the the country can get back to something close to what was normal before the pandemic. And that then the economy will begin to revive to a greater degree. social peace will be more easily restored uh, and people can kind of go back to their daily lives. That's certainly what the government's hoping, that they won't have to do anything more. I think there are a number of areas where there could be uh, more of a crisis, whether that's around an outbreak of COVID, around a serious economic crisis that may or may not happen. If protests sprung up again, around something else or or around these these issues a second time that could provoke another set of problems that would be harder perhaps to address uh the next time around so it's hard to say uh, that everything will be just fine uh for the chinese government but i think that they're hoping that it will be if they just sort of allow this to calm down and maybe accelerate their strategy for reopening a little bit
0: Today's episode was produced by Jairad Singh, Sunai Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on Plus, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at toipodcast at timesinternet.in.